PTSD. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com in San Antonio. Do you have your pipes wrapped? Are you ready for the icy, wintry mix that's coming our way this weekend, Jeremy? Ugh, I'm so scared. It's like, we have to do this again? That that weird panic you do outside your faucets to make sure they're dripping or, yeah. you know, make sure they're protected. Uh-huh. It's like, ugh. Drama. Yeah, it is drama. Although you can't blame people for having PTSD about, you know, winter weather in Texas. I was uh, scrolling around on TV. You want to watch uh, some TV with me? Yep. Look at the TV news here. Let's do it. Um, on Fox, Fox 7 in Austin uh, this morning, they were talking about how we had so many problems last year. Not not during uh, URI, but remember, we had a bunch of issues in Austin and, cent- and the rest of Central Texas during a winter storm. And at that time, people thought, well, didn't y'all figure this out? after the one back in 2021. Mayor of Austin Kirk Watson says one of the key issues faced a year ago was communication between all the officials. He says that's since been fixed. Sure that everybody is being trained in the same way so that everyone, we, we all are communicating in the same way. And frankly, that there are communication lines in place to allow for that communication to occur. Cold weather shelters will be activated Sunday evening and run through Tuesday morning at 3 Austin Public Library locations. And Jeremy, I like how on days like this, television reporters will be out talking to, you know, like a plumber outside of a house about how to wrap the pipes and do all that sort of stuff. Like this report in Houston, uh, where the reporter and a plumber are doing that. They're wrapping pipes with a towel and some electrical tape. This is, um, you know, stuff that you have around your house already. Mike was telling me that he went to, you know, the common stores like, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's. They were already out of, you know, those official products that will cover this up. And so these, this is some stuff that you already have at home. So this is a great option to protect your home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to get real yeah, fancy with it again. So even Bucky's cups, Whataburger's cups, right, something like that. So the idea is we want to keep it from the wind uh, and then also from any sort of rain that may come that may increase the speed of which it may freeze. You know people have Whataburger cups and Bucky's cups just sitting around, Jeremy. Like if you if you go, he's saying you know if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, and they don't have any of those, uh, you know, the the cool little professional grade, um, you know, insulators for the outdoor pipes. You can just use one of those cups. Just get some tape. It's all good. Of course, as I said, nobody can blame people for being freaked out. You know that when you go to the grocery store, if you went uh, either uh, today as we tape the show on Friday or in the last couple of days, uh, and we've mentioned this before, but it's true, right? When you when you are at the store and you see what people are putting in their carts right now before a winter cold snap, what are they doing? They're not just get, getting ready for cold. They're getting ready for a blackout, right? Because people are worried about what happened a couple of years ago and the failure of the grid. And those memories, of course, are still fresh on the minds of lots of people. You start thinking about like crazy things, like whenever you're cold, you know, I'm I'm sitting there thinking about things that I can light on fire in my living room. It it was the first time I, I saw how fast established order could absolutely disintegrate. It brings me tears to even think about it now because I lost so much that I can't replace. Now, to be clear, we don't expect anything like that uh, this weekend or into the beginning of next week, although it's going to be cold. If you look at the forecast temperatures, Jeremy, we're looking at some temps in part of the state uh, as low as 12 or 15. Folks might remember that during winter storm Uri, those temperatures were around 
five or six. Yep. So it's going to be not as cold as that, but it's still really cold. But the, but the main thing is we don't expect a lot of precipitation the way we did uh, during that winter storm. Remember, uh, you had uh, blizzard conditions in the Panhandle and ice on trees in Galveston during winter storm Uri, yep. right? People uh, stuck in their cars along the seawall and that sort of thing. Uh, I was looking at uh, one of the sites that I like. Eric Berger does uh, that, uh, that uh, Space City weather in Houston, uh, which is real. I like that they do it without any of the hype. And he's saying, look, you know, for Saturday, it's going to be just a nice day. It's going to get cold on Sunday in the Houston area. You, you may see uh, to the north, it's sort of up toward Montgomery County and Conroe and to the west, Waller County and Fort Bend, you may see some minor ice accumulations, but that's about it. Nothing like what we saw uh, during the disaster that killed hundreds of people. Yeah, absolutely. And then you you have that problem with like you know the the overpasses that like you know, clearly you, know, you don't build an old overpass thinking that it's going to be neg- you know a five degree with wind chill and rain for three or four days in a row. Typically, we don't have that. They're not predicting that for this storm. So hopefully, that keeps our transportation system with our limited snow and ice removal equipment. Hey, we're no New Jersey or New York, you know, they would have been icing. Yeah. Like, in fact, I saw a truck trying to do some icing, you know, already out there. You know, I don't know what their process is, but I saw a truck, you know, dropping stuff just the other day. So, um, it's again, I think everybody's kind of getting ready. At least we've been through this drill. And th- like you mentioned, it wasn't just, you know, Yuri. It was last year we had, you know, other storms mm-hmm. too that caused concerns and, you know, knocked out power, broke my pipes. You know, it's like, I'm one of those people. So it's like, it's like, so right. like it, we're, we've, we're almost getting used to this. There's a new normal now in Texas. And that new normal yeah. is once a winter, you should be prepared for not just, you know, icy conditions, but the chance that your power is going to go out. Of course, people want to have the discussion about climate change and the more, you know, the frequency of these um, extreme events. Um, and that's a legitimate discussion. But, you know, what's causing problems in Texas you know, at least, you know, in the near term, but more acutely uh, is the fact that we've grown so much. Yeah. So many extra people who are using the same amount of power from the electricity grid. Um, I think Lieutenant Governor Patrick was right when he talked about how we need more um, electricity generation just in general. Uh, he talked about that over the last couple of years. Uh, but I keep going back to this stat uh, that was given by the for- now former chairman of the Public Utility Commission, uh, Peter Lake. La- you might remember this, Jeremy. Last June, he gave an update before we got into the you know real heat of the summer months. And of course, that's when the grid is really tested even more than the winter usually uh, in Texas. This was the stat. Between 2008 and 2022, Texas on-demand dispatchable power, and when you hear dispatchable, just think that, you know, that means that uh, if you flip a switch, electricity comes out of the machine. We're not talking about solar or wind when you talk about dispatchable. So instead, think about gas-fired plants, coal-fired plants, uh, nuclear, and that sort of stuff. Between 08 and 22, the dispatchable power in this state grew by 1.5%, while population in Texas was going up 24% at the same time. It's that we have so many more people who are reliant on what's become a less reliant grid. Yeah, it's you know I, everybody's taking that lie. I love it song too much to heart. You know, you're not from Texas, but you know, come here anyhow. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll continue to watch it uh, over the weekend. I wanted to uh, remind people that we are keeping an eye on it. Of course, at HoustonChronicle.com uh, and QuorumReport.com, we'll have updates as well. But I, I just don't expect to see uh, the same kind of thing at all uh, that we saw a couple of years ago. Uh, now on to politics. You saw this, Jeremy, and I saw it in your newsletter at Governor Abbott. 
was taking some incoming uh, fire for his comments to Dana Lesh, who's a big uh, talk show host, a conservative, who's also been, I think, a spokesperson for the NRA and stuff. Um, and they were talking about all of the state's efforts on immigration. You saw the headlines the last couple of days about uh, the state taking over um, a public park in Eagle Pass. Of course, we have covered here the floating border buoys and the legal uh, battle about that, the wall that's going up, the razor wire, and all that sort of stuff. And in the middle of the exchange, Abbott said something that has a lot of people pissed. And what it was was he said, look, you know, uh, for us to do even more, we'd basically have to shoot people who are coming across the river. Uh, and we're not doing that because, uh, and this is the way he put it, because then the Biden administration would charge us all with murder, which would, uh, that would, of course, be true. Now, the governor tried to uh, explain this during a news conference earlier today uh, here on Friday, uh, but I don't think his explanation makes it any better. He was saying that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was saying, look, he was asked you know, what would be too much as far as uh, trying to enforce the border and the immigration laws that we have. And so I'll let you hear the entire exchange. I saw online that um, on Twitter and some other places that uh, the comment was being circulated, but without the question and then the answer. So I'm going to let you Good listen. Point. I'm going to let you listen to all of it. And then we'll talk about whether this makes it any better. I don't think it makes it better at all, but take a listen. What can be done like right up to the line where uh, maybe they would come and say, Governor, you're breaking the law. We got to arrest you for trying to enforce the law at the border. Like, what what is the maximum amount of pressure that you, as governor, can can implement to to protect the border? Well, we we are using every tool that can be used, from building a border wall to uh, building these uh, border barriers uh, to. Uh, passing uh, this law that I signed that led to another lawsuit by the Biden administration where I signed a law uh, making it illegal for somebody to enter Texas from another country. Uh, and so, and, and they're subject to arrest uh, and subject to deportation. And so we are deploying every tool and strategy that we possibly can. The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. And you, you can't even keep them detained, from what I understand. Like, the administration won't even allow you to keep them in detainment for X, for a, a X amount of days. She looked aghast at the fact that you can't keep these people locked up in state custody. Now, Jeremy, um, uh, in listening to all of that, I have a, a couple of things to say. One, there is video of it. So if you watch, and did, did you see the video? When, when you watch him answer that, he starts smiling when he talks about shooting migrants. All right, that, that's one thing. So I think to a point you made, uh, either in your newsletter uh, or on, on Twitter, um, I think maybe he was reaching for a joke there. Um, but to me, it's, it's that the whole discussion is disgusting. It's that you, as, this is the governor of Texas. This is not, you know, some state representative who's trying to get attention for himself, you know, some, uh, somebody who maybe isn't as well known. Greg Abbott is known from coast to coast. The governor of Texas is a national position. You don't need to be on the Dana Les show and be in a conversation where you know the kinds of questions that are going to be asked or things like this. And when you're constantly whipping people up about how bad it is on the border, and then it, what you say in response to a question is, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're not allowed to shoot those people. There would be legal consequences for us if we shot them. You would be put, you know, putting it into the heads of certain people that, well, if, if you still have this huge problem on the border and you're doing all of these things, 
but the thing you're not doing is shooting them, well, then there's going to be some people who think that you ought to shoot them, right? I mean, some people will think that the next step would be to shoot them, and that's exactly, you don't, I'm not making this up. This isn't my conjecture. That happened before in Texas, right? I mean, go back to the El Paso shooting, the exact same rhetoric was in that guy's manifesto when he packed up in Dallas-Fort Worth and went west to hunt Mexicans, to hunt brown people in El Paso County. Yeah, and, and, and you, you kind of nailed it. It's like, you know, there's a point where, like, Abbott, in that interview, you see him start smiling. But, you know, Dana Lesh just goes right through it. She didn't, like, chuckle with him and give him a chance to say, well, of course, I'm kidding. I would never even suggest that. That'd be terrible. Like, there, if, if he thought that there was going to be that moment, she didn't give that, you know, because they were they're, you know, they take delay because he was doing it from a Skype interview. And so who knows, right? You know, like, who knows what was into all that? But, like, your point is, like, on mark. When you say that, one people can't hear you smile. So, okay, so a lot of people are going to take that very seriously, what you yeah. said, like that shooter in El Paso. But mm. the thing that adds context to it is like, look, you know, Texas Take listeners know just from a couple months ago, we had Ron DeSantis in audio saying he wanted to shoot those, you know, suspected drug dealers or anybody who he suspects coming here legally, right. stone cold dead. Remember that was in Eagle Pass. We had that audio of that. Mm-hmm. And, it's like, yep. and it's not just him. You know, it's like we've heard, you know, before, you know, people like, you know, even, you know, if you go back even you know, before that, when uh, uh, Alan West and Don Huffines were challenging Greg Abbott, one of the things they want, they kept saying was we wanted to change the rules of engagement so we could return fire at people across the border if we thought they were a danger to us. So I, I, again, I don't take Abbott's comments seriously. Like he does, he wants to you know start shooting migrants. I'm going to try to think that that's not what he wants to do. But in the context of all that stuff, somebody listening to that interview is going to get the sense like he said that seriously. They can't see his smile, yeah. and DeSantis has been saying almost the same thing. So maybe I can help the governor. It's like, and that's what I'm nervous about. Like, it's like we're just in a, a society that doesn't understand, like, even if it was a well-told joke, there, you know, some people aren't going to get that subtle humor. Like, you know, it's like, it's too subtle for that audience that's really riled up on such an issue mm-hmm. where they, you know, when they're talking like this is an invasion and you joke right. about shooting them, that's, that just adds a different kind of fuel to this. So I'm concerned about where this goes at, and I really mm-hmm. hope somehow that, comment kind of slows down and like it doesn't spread all over you know the QAnon type world or whatever i think i don't follow QAnon, so i don't know how seriously they're taking it and that's i wish like we could kind of get into that and make sure that you know this doesn't go any further like it did for that kid who drove to el paso and murdered our fellow texans you know it's like that drives me crazy yeah. Now, remember the big blow up in the Texas House about this when some of these policies were being debated. Representative Armando Wally, who is a Latino Democrat from Houston, confronted some of his Republican friends about what they were doing when they were passing these laws uh, that would amount to rounding up people who are suspected of being undocumented in this country uh, and then taking them back to the border. I mean, he's he and others are arguing that this is going to lead to racial profiling straight up. And now you have the governor making these comments that, as you said, would potentially cause someone who's either not right in the head out there uh, to twist off and do something like what happened in El Paso. 
or just the average Fox News viewer thinking that that's what the government of Texas ought to be doing is shooting people. Listen to what happened when this is a little flashback for you. This is what happened when Wally said, you know what? Those of you who are you know, supporting these policies, you don't understand what it's like to be someone who looks like me. That's the way he put it. Y'all don't understand the shit that y'all do hurts our community. It hurts us personally, bro. Could you just let us it hurts it? us. Just, just let us debate it. It hurts us to our fucking core. And y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our fucking skin. Now, Abbott is talking in these extreme terms. And look, there's a reason that he's doing that. And there's a reason that um, campaign, you know, campaigns um, are pushing messages like this, um, this tough on the border thing. I mean, look at what's happening with Tony Gonzalez, for example, a congressman from South Texas, who has been accused of being soft on all this stuff in the past, right, uh, by some of those who are further to his right. Um, and he's got what four primary challengers, something yeah, like that. So he's at least so he's four. trying to, yeah. So he's trying to really, you know, sound tough on this. Listen to this television ad. The border is wide open. I love you, Joe Biden. As sheriffs, we see it every day. Thousands. One conservative is doing something about it. Tony Gonzalez. They're terrorizing Texans every day. It's time to take the gloves off. I don't know why anyone takes any of this stuff seriously. And let me, let me explain what I mean. I mean the messages that are being put out in some of these campaigns and the way that certain people campaign on it and about it. Jeremy, you've seen this over and over again. You've been to the border to Eagle Pass and other places where uh, Republican politicians will go down there to try to look tough. Uh, and th then what are the images that you see? First of all, it has to have a rock and roll guitar in the background. This is not serious. You see photos of state representatives and congressmen and others smiling, standing with each other in their sunglasses and their, you know, their border gear while they're, you know, next to the Rio Grande as if they're, uh, as if they're touring Disneyland or something. Um, and then I remember, I remember Governor Perry in the gunboats when he was, yeah. uh, when he was in office and he'd have the sunglasses on with a backward ball cap on the gunboat riding like he's trying to look tough. Remember George P. Bush riding his ATV along the wall in the sunglasses like he's tough on the border, uh, like he's going to go attack the people themselves. All of this is uh, the the rhetoric is violent. The imagery is violent. Then you see the people who are on the border, uh, you know, in their like they're like they're touring Willy Wonka's candy factory, grinning ear to ear because they got to go down there and see what and see this firsthand. And when they get there, despite all the militarization along the border. Despite all of, you know, the guns and the extra, uh, you know, uh, mil uh, and, the, you know, the military, the extra police, the everything, it's still a place they can smile and take a picture. None of this is serious at all. And yet it's what resonates with Republican primary voters. Yeah. Okay. First, I got to say, like, yeah, the, the, maybe the most irritating thing to cover as a journalist are when members of Congress dress up like it's like some sort of cosplay type thing on the yeah. border, where it's just like they're dressed like superheroes, like that are going to save the earth. But the other thing to remember, like, anytime you see a live shot from uh, Eagle Pass right near on the water, uh, folks, I just want to let you know if you pan the camera the other way, you are one block from the downtown area that is filled yeah. with all these like, you know, safe, regular, normal human beings, like just going shopping, getting lunch, whatever. So like, it's like, it just, it looks like any town USA, but if you just turn that one direction and look in that one part of the border, you can get all that razor wire in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's not even everywhere. It's just in that one spot, like almost as if like, Oh, if we put it here, nobody will come, which leads to this thought that like, look, that obviously the border is 1,200 miles long. 
right, in the, along the Texas border. Uh, and so, like, all of it's not covered with that, but that area right. is. So where does Mike Johnson, the House Speaker, want to be? Right there. And that's exactly where he was last week, you know, so he could kind of show off. Look at all how dangerous this border is. It looks dangerous because of the stuff we put there. It's like it's looked like that forever, right? You know, but anyway, you know, so it's just like it, it, people should know that, like in Laredo, Eagle Pass, uh, you know, El Paso, you know, if you look at, you know, like when people do that shot from the border, just know right on the other side of that is just normal human Texans, like right. doing their shopping, you know, going to school. What it's like, it's all just normal life. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of border. And then you see an image of, you know, dozens of people who might be coming. And then you get the message uh, and the, you know, the coverage on Fox News Channel that says there's a caravan. All these people are coming in and they show, you know, these, the, all, these, all these people, the picture of lots of people. And I saw where Chip Roy uh, had posted, our, one of our congressmen from Central Texas had, had posted um, an image of one of the uh, playoff games, college football. And he said, you know, all these people who are in the stadium, that represents, you know, as many people who come across the border in a certain amount of time. So you show this giant crowd of people at at a college football game, and then you show people along the border, a lot of people along the border. You could, on New Year's Eve, you could show lots of people in Times Square at New York. Uh, you know, uh, you could show uh, Fremont Street in Las Vegas, hundreds of people, thousands of people who are gathered. Do you know what's common to every one of those? Uh, there are lots of things, but one thing that's common to every one of the things I'm talking about with all these big gatherings of people, there are always security concerns for any large crowd of people, right? So you've got lots of people who are coming in. Yes, there might be one of them in there who's a security concern, right? Same thing. At the Super Bowl, same thing at a New Year's Eve gathering. I mean, this is the only one that we're going to melt the country down about. Now, you mentioned Speaker Johnson. He's not conservative enough either now. Did you, did you see that? <laughs> For, <laughs> yeah. Despite all his cosplay on the border. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, I was joking. Like the honeymoon is getting shorter and shorter every freaking time. <laughs> Here's the headline from Politico. Johnson strikes his first bipartisan deal, a $1.7 trillion funding accord. Why does that number sound familiar? Isn't it just about exactly the amount that Kevin McCarthy was going to do his deal with the Democrats in the Senate? Uh, There are some differences in the details, of course. I was listening to the coverage of this uh, on NPR and elsewhere, Jeremy, and, um, you know, there's a reason that Chip Roy and guys like that are upset about it. But uh, these are the same folks. And and Roy, to his credit, he didn't lead the charge to get rid of McCarthy. But the same exact people who ran off McCarthy are now mad at Johnson and maybe there's just a reality to governing when you have divided government. Yeah, it's like, and and, and it's strange because what they're asking Johnson to do, and as we tape this, who knows what Johnson ultimately will do. There's some speculation that, you know, he may renege on whatever mm-hmm. negotiations people think he was having. You know, we don't know. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, smoke and mirrors at this point. But like, so, but if he does that and go with what, you know, some of these hardcores want, then there's no chance of passing the Senate and we go back into that crazy cycle of shutting down the government and cutting off pay to our military and our soldiers and everybody sitting at Lackland right now loses a paycheck. You know, just like, what? Like, that's that's our alternative here. This is how quickly this thing kind of rolls out of control, you know, if they decide to 
you know, just kill this, you know, you know, this, what if this minor program, like not minor program, but this disagreement that they're having, if they can't just do a CR, get us through this and then work on a real budget, that would be the best, you know, kind of route at this point. Just get this off the table. Like who, nobody wants to shut down. It's not going to help anybody except for Chip Roy seems to want to shut down. Right. Well, here's uh, here's Chip Roy talking to uh, Fox News about how frustrated he is now with the new speaker. Look, I think we need accountability. And, uh, you know, I didn't support the motion to vacate against Kevin in the fall. Uh, some of my colleagues decided to go down that road. I thought it was a mistake. I don't think you should pull the coach out in the third quarter. Um, I thought we were making progress and we should have finished the job. We didn't. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, Speaker Johnson is doing all the same stupid crap that we opposed. And and now he's you know honoring these side deals that we shouldn't have honored, that we were pushing Kevin on. We were trying to kind of tighten. And uh, I think that's a mistake. I think we need to have a serious family conversation as Republicans. What is our aim? What is our goal? You know, some of them got frustrated because I gave a speech before Thanksgiving saying, what have we done? Well, I would ask right now, what are we doing? So once again, you have Chip Roy saying that the Republican leadership in Washington hasn't really accomplished anything. But I, I mean, I get his frustration, Jeremy, but the only way to accomplish things when you have a divided government and Democrats running the Senate is to compromise with them. So they continue to put their they, you know, they continue to put themselves in this box. Uh, Roy leading the charge on, you know, running right into that box and saying that, you know, we haven't done anything as Republicans. I mean, what couldn't you paint it the same way if the House continued to pass things that the Senate just wouldn't go along with? You could say, yeah, we took all these votes. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of um, when over and over again, Republicans would have these show votes in Washington on repealing the Affordable Care Act, and then it wouldn't happen because you the president. this was when President Obama was there and they couldn't get it done. And then, of course, you had uh, former President Trump promise that there would be a repeal of ACA some repeal and replacement of it. And then guess what? That didn't happen when you had, and the, and by the way, this happened when Republicans ran everything, right? They had the House and the Senate and the presidency, and they still couldn't get that done. Um, but look, but, and so, you know, that that's one situation. But right now, they've got a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. And to be able to go back home and say that you accomplished anything, you would have to compromise. But today's Republican Party is not into that. Well, and what makes this even harder this time than it was back even in October, like remember, Kevin McCarthy's gone, and so is George Santos. So the number of ma the majority for the Republicans uh, is dwindling. And I think it was uh, uh, Steve Scalise is having some medical procedures where he's out of pocket for the next month. And so you end up with three members gone when they only had a five-seat majority to begin with. So now the, the margin of error here is like nothing. It's like they can't lose a single Republican. And so when Chip Roy is saying this stuff, he knows he has a lot of power, just like every single Republican, just like Matt Gates of Florida had in leading the charge to get rid of Kevin McCarthy, even though it was really one Republican. He joined with all the Democrats, you know, to be able to kind of cobble together a group that said, oh, great, we get to kick McCarthy out, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and here we are. It's like, it just feels like we could get into this perpetual cycle of Republicans deposing their uh, House Speaker over and over again, you know, and I just don't know how that plays with, you know, voters uh, come November. I'm trying to figure out um, when, once we get to the general election, how big a deal it will be um, and this depends on how big a deal, I guess, Democrats want to make it. Um, but I don't know if it's going to resonate with voters. Uh, the events of January 6th. Now, you have Republicans all the time now saying 
that Democrats are going to want to make it a big issue. Maybe they will and maybe they won't. I don't look. The president has set the tone that he wants to talk about it. He gave that speech in the Philadelphia area where he said that democracy is basically on the line. Um, you have Senator Ted Cruz and others mocking him for that, and we'll get to Cruz here in just a little bit. Um, but the events of January 6th, which of course the anniversary, is just this past weekend, um, you know, it's something that people still think about, talk about. Um, I'm thinking about it in terms of how. Some Republicans, not all, but it seems like the majority in Congress, how, how they feel about it, and the difference between the way they felt about it on the day that it happened versus now. The, the way they talk about it that day versus now is very different. I mean, the, those, a lot of those folks were talking about holding Trump accountable. Kevin McCarthy himself said that right, at, you know, right as it was happening in those you know, hours and days afterward. Um, you don't have to go to California, though. To find a state rep, uh, to find a uh, you know a congressman who talks differently about it now. Uh, chief example: Troy Nails from Fort Bend County. Did you see that this past weekend some new footage was revealed of Nails on January sixth at that moment, which was you know just sort of emblematic of everything that happened that day. We had previously seen the still shots and so some other photos of when some of those rioters and the insurrectionists, when they made their way to the back of the House chamber at the door there, you're talking about the door where the president walks in, right, when, when he does the State of the Union? Well, you had rioters out there. And remember the images of that really start, Jeremy, with you know security with guns drawn on the door. Troy Nails is right there, and this is in the, you know, during the pandemic days when he's got a Texas flag mask on, on the House floor. Um, and during the confrontation between Troy Nails and some of these rioters, you can hear him say to them that as a former sheriff, which he was, he, he's telling them that the whole thing is shameful. They should not be doing this. And if you, if you look up this video, it's not hard to find. Just look for Troy Nails, uh, you know, January 6th. It's what comes up over the last weekend. Um, he's he's just incensed. He can't believe what these people are doing. T take a, it's a little hard to hear it, but but listen to the exchange between these guys, these uh, these folks who were trying to get into trying to break into the U.S. House of Representatives, and Congressman Nails telling them this is completely unacceptable. I've been in law enforcement Texas for thirty years. Talk a little louder. That's because you've never seen corruption like we have seen this last month. And I'm ashamed of my Congress people. So he's saying that I've been in law enforcement for 30 years in Texas. I've never seen anything like this. And he said that he was ashamed over the whole deal. He said they should be ashamed over the whole deal. Uh, his thinking evolved from that moment to now. And you see this with a lot of Republicans, right? Here's the same guy on a conservative talk show saying that the left is trying to distort what happened on January 6th. I don't know why we shy away from January 6th. We're afraid to talk about that, but we need to talk about that. We need to talk about January 6th because if you don't think Adam Kensinger and Liz Cheney and all the liberal media, the, the nut jobs, the, the dishonest media is going to start bringing that into this 2024 election, as once Trump is the nominee and he is our nominee, it's going to be highlighted every single day. Matter of fact, they've indicted for it. So I, my focus right now is making sure that Donald Trump gets back in the White House. And I want to help kind of lead that effort to bring the counter narrative to that sham committee. Because I'm telling you, there are moderate Republicans out there that believe Donald Trump is at fault 
for January 6th. Now, I know what he might say about this is that, yes, he was disgusted with those people who were trying to break in Jeremy on January 6th. But he would then say that in the moment he wasn't blaming Donald Trump for it. He wasn't saying that, oh, you know, the, the president is the one who should be ashamed of all this. Um, but you could see the difference in the way he was talking there as it was unfolding versus now that he has gotten right. And this is the same thing that happened with McCarthy. I think in the moment of January 6th, a lot of those folks were disgusted. They couldn't believe that this had happened. They wanted accountability. And a lot of them wanted accountability for then-President Trump. But they went back, and then they looked at their poll numbers, and it, it seemed that, to them, Republican voters were not moving away from Trump. And if you look at the, some of the more recent um, polls in the last couple of uh, weeks about the attitudes, because there was a lot of polling about how feel, people feel about January 6th, Jeremy, um, a large it's – not, it's not the kind – and we talked a little bit about this previously. It's not just the kind of thing that unfolds in the dark corners of the internet where you have some, you know, conspiracy theorists who think that um, President Trump was screwed out of the election, that, uh, you know, that, that it was some kind of a uh, big conspiracy to, to deny him his rightful place as president. No, it, it's the majority of Republican voters think that he was cheated, right? That he, that he should be president. And that's why Nails is talking this way. It doesn't even matter if his life was threatened that day Politically, it's to his advantage to say, you know, the left wants to paint this a certain way and act as if, you know, that that, that this was that, that this was so terrible. When you have nails and some other Republicans who would say, you know, and they've said this, that was that was it amounted to like a tourist day at the Capitol. That it wasn't really that bad, didn't really matter that much, and and we're not even sure why all these people are even number one even talking about it, number two trying to lay it at the feet of former President Trump. Well, and, and you're not going to believe this, but there's politics going on in here, too. <laughs> it's like that Casablanca scene where they're like, oh, my gosh, is there gambling going on in the establishment? It's like in this case, you know, Troy Nails, his, you know, I think important context is to note that when he was being when they were under attack that day on January 6th uh, in 2021, he just got elected to a district that looks very different than the district looks today. When he got elected to that district, the Fort Bend County was the, you know, was almost the entirety of that district. And it was, he barely won that district. It was a very competitive Democratic district. If you'll remember, Sri Preston Kokarni uh, gave him the run of his life. You know, it was a tight race. Troy Nails wins that election. So it's a, it's a more moderate district when he's standing there uh, telling those rioters that he's embarrassed, right? You know, but what's his district look like now? Thanks to redistricting that just happened right after that, they took a lot of Democrats out of his district uh, and put them into uh, U.S. Representative uh, Lizzie Fletcher's district and into Al Green's district just to make that district safer for a Republican. So now the district is super safe for a Republican. And so Troy Nails isn't concerned about a general election. His biggest concern would be about a primary challenger. So when he's sitting there in October, right before the filing period, saying that he doesn't consider those people who were charging, you know, trying to break in to kill him <laughs> as insurrectionists. That's literally what he did on, Oct on October 31st. You'll see some tweets from him where he oh, says yeah. they're not insurrectionists. You know, I don't see them that. But that was right before the filing period. You know, it's like it was clearly a message that like he is with, you know, those folks. Please don't primary me. 
You know, it's like, I think that is kind of the undertow of this thing where it's like, you know, this was a guy in, you know, during January 6th was in a very different district than he is today. And he's responding almost appropriately for what the district looked like on January 21st and January 6th to what it is now. I think he's just shifted with the district. Of course. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's why it's become so difficult to cover some of these things when, the, and look, it, it'll you, you know you kind of sound like the old man pining for the good old days, but there was a time when, you know, people's understanding of these sorts of events were um, sort of anchored to reality, and for so many people, they're not. I mean, you go and if you say, if I stand in front of a group of Republicans, and I talk about President Trump losing the last election, I guarantee you, most of the people in the room won't agree that that's what happened. You know, and, and so if you if you point out the fact that he lost, even that makes you quote the liberal media. You know, but clearly he lost the election. And in previous presidential elections, when a major political party loses, the thing that they do is they have a time of introspection. Do you remember when the party did um, their their autopsy when they yeah, lost the election? Romney. Yeah, yeah. After right. Mitt Romney, the RNC you know did a study. And they called it their autopsy of that election. And what is that, uh, 2012? And <laughs> and then they you know, they were trying to figure out, you know, why is it that people were not buying what we were selling? Because that's what you do. You know, you want to make it about the voters and what their concerns are uh, so that you can win an election. And instead, what Republicans are doing now, they certainly have not done an – they haven't done an autopsy on that last election as far as what the Republicans got wrong – they think they did everything right, right? This is what's fundamentally, you know, I mean, the only thing that's saving the Republican Party from being um, completely uncompetitive in this next presidential is that so many Democrats are not thrilled about their candidate either. That, I mean, that, that I mean, if you look at the polling now that show, and you know, I mean, you'll you'll go to town on the on how bad the polls are at this point, Jeremy. I know you'll do that. I trust you to do that. <laughs> but for national national polling, which really doesn't matter right now, but I'm only pointing it out for this reason. The, uh, national polling that shows Biden and Trump within the margin of error, right, uh, at this point, they, it, it's, it's, it's supposedly very competitive. Well, the Republicans are having almost, almost fake debates about who their nominee ought to be. If, if you watch that, uh, that debate on CNN this week between DeSantis and Nikki Haley, it's almost sad to watch um, because, you know, uh, she, she's there plugging her rondesantislies.com over and over again. They are, they're, both of them are, you know, spewing their rehearsed lines about each other and trying to beat each other up. In, for neither of them are they really going after Trump uh, in any way, shape, or form because they don't want to piss off the people who support him. And in the meantime, he's over on Fox News Channel doing um, – you know, a town hall, uh, both of these events happening in Iowa, he's doing a town hall where he's almost sounding like the reasonable one uh, on some things because he's already looking forward to the general election, right? He thinks he's going to be the nominee, which is probably a pretty safe bet. So, for example, on abortion, you heard Trump trying to strike a tone that you've talked about before for Republicans, Jeremy, which is, yeah, they've gone and repealed Roe versus Wade thanks to President Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court, but even Trump trying to, you know, sound this compassionate tone about it and him, you know, Trump trying to say, you know, I mean, you don't hear a lot of Republicans say this. He said, 
that you know a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant when they're five and six weeks along in their pregnancy. So maybe some of those restrictions should be looked at. He said you have to have exceptions and all of that, not the kind of thing that you hear from a lot of Republicans around here in Texas who are certainly not worried about a general election, but he is. And so he's moderating his tone on some things already because he thinks he'll be the nominee. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I love the, you know, watching that uh, Nikki Haley versus Ron DeSantis debate, knowing that Trump's on the other channel, it kind of felt like uh, like Guns N' Roses when they like started, like got back together, except for they didn't have Axl Rose. Like you go to a Guns N' Roses show and you don't have the leader of the band playing, right? You know, yeah. it's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> I've been ripped off. So you tune in the debate and you have DeSantis and Nikki Haley talking. You're like, Trump's somewhere else. He's doing his own <laughs> rock concert, you know, a couple of channels down the dial, man. And so you flip over there and like, it's, it's crazy. But uh, look, I, I, you know, you know me in polling at this point. Everybody listening to the show knows yeah, at this point that I, I just don't trust any polling especially, you know, this close, you know, and when you start getting to Iowa and New Hampshire, it gets even worse. Uh, you know, as a note that in, in 2012, not one poll had you know, Rick Santorum winning the Iowa caucus. Mm-hmm. And he did, you know, right. it's like even Ted Cruz's win caught people by surprise. He wasn't expected to win that primary in 2016. Uh, and you go back even further, you know, it's like, we're like, uh, I think Huckabee ended up winning Iowa, in yeah. that first time around. So one, I was weird to begin with. You know, you see all those candidates I just named did not become president of the United States. And <laughs> secondly, it's hard to poll Iowa and New Hampshire because they're so small. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to kind of figure out who you're getting. So look, it could be a closer race. Who knows? Uh, but certainly, you know, Trump at this point, like he's clearly said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to talk about DeSantis and Haley. You know, I'm just going to move on and go after Biden. Which is probably yeah. a smart play. That's where he's at. Now, uh, you have seen a couple of states make decisions to kick Trump off the ballot. This happened in Colorado and in Maine. Uh, and this is based on the Constitution's requirement that the person running for president or, or who is eligible to run for president uh, cannot have participated in an insurrection, which we were just talking about, January 6th. Now, who's writing to the defense of Donald Trump? Well, just about every Republican, of course. Senator Ted Cruz said that if the Supreme Court agrees with Colorado's Supreme Court, then it would rip the country apart because he argues that every other state would then have to do the same thing. And it wouldn't just happen in Democratic states where they don't like Trump to begin with, that even Texas and other Republican-led states would have to you know, pull Trump right off the ballot because the Supreme Court would have found that you know, that he's basically guilty of inciting an insurrection, therefore can't be the president. You know, there's a rich irony. Democrats, what they tell you, what they accuse their opponents of doing, almost inevitably is what, in fact, they are doing. Every Democrat right now is beating their chest saying, we must save democracy. Joe Biden just gave a ludicrously self-righteous speech saying we must save democracy, by which he means elect Democrats, and nothing saves democracy or defends democracy like throwing your opponent off the ballot to stop the voters from voting for him. Understand why the Democrats are doing this. They're afraid the voters will vote for Donald Trump if he's on the ballot. And so they're trying to prevent democracy. I don't think the Supreme Court is gonna have any interest in playing a part in preventing democracy. 
Now, of course, his comments speak to the fact that the Supreme Court is more and more a political body that would want to do something that would sit well with people rather than follow the law, which is what the court is there to do, right? Which is interpret the law, you know, and, and by the way, it's not as he's saying that, I mean, follow that to its logical conclusion. That would mean that the Supreme Court would never make rulings that set people in the country against each other. Right. I mean, that, that would mean that, <laughs> that would, would mean <laughs> that would mean that they would not overturn Roe versus Wade, because look at the way that has people fighting with each other. That would mean that they would never have um, issued the Dred Scott decision, which led to a civil war later. Right. Um, I mean, come on now. Hey, now, hey, now, wait. wait, now, wait, that doesn't mean they won't. That, that doesn't mean they won't do what Cruz is saying, because because guess what? He's right about about it. They are more and more a political um, institution. At least that's the way most people see it. Right, Jeremy? Well, you're, you're taking my history moment from it. You're, you're dropping Dred Scott <laughs> you know, references in there. That's me, man. Come on. So Abraham Lincoln. You I'm know, mixing would be it like, up in 2024. Yeah, and, and I'll bring you an Abraham Lincoln reference here. It's yeah. like, a you know, fun fact. In 1860, Texas didn't allow Abraham Lincoln on the ballot. It's like, we've been here before. It's right. like, you know, nobody in Texas ever voted for Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and so again, so this whole idea of kicking people off the ballot, hey, we've been here before. <laughs> it's happened. Well, uh, look, um, if and I saw where some folks were trying to argue that this it, this shouldn't be the process that um, that a court in Colorado can decide or the secretary of state in Maine can decide that the guy's not eligible to be president. But that is the process. And by the way, Senator Cruz, it was Republicans who filed that lawsuit because they're trying to keep him off the primary ballot in Colorado. Now, if the Supreme Court were to say that it's okay to be involved in an insurrection um, and then still run for president, wouldn't that mean they'd have to get rid of every other qualification for president that's in the Constitution? You wouldn't have to be a natural-born citizen? You wouldn't have to be 35? Or... or, or <laughs> Or at least a resident of the United States for whatever it is, fourteen years. Now, hey, look, you remember when there was the debate about whether Senator Cruz could yeah. could be eligible to be president because of uh, citizenship questions, a natural born citizen, or yeah, Senator John. Mc, it brought up it it, uh, it brought up the memories about Senator John McCain being yeah. a natural born citizen. It's not as if I'm only bringing that up to say that those those aren't the same things, but I'm I'm bringing it up to say that we have had debates about whether certain candidates were eligible to be president previously. And in this case, I think it's fascinating because in this case, like whether you're natural born or not is not up to you. Right? You you don't get to decide where you're born. Being involved in an insurrection would be something where you chose that. Right. There are there's this thing you can do according to the Constitution at the plain reading of the Constitution. By the way, I've heard from some very conservative people who have said that for the Supreme Court to rule in Trump's favor on this, they would have to they would really test whether they're an originalist court, whether they really are looking just at the words that are in the Constitution. Anything to do with an insurrection, as you point out, you know, the whole Abe Lincoln thing has to do with the civil war you know that's why they, that's why that ended up in the constitution they didn't want these confederate uh, leaders to end up running for president but if you look at just the words that are there if they agree with the court in colorado and here's where senator cruz is right by the way if they agree with the court in colorado 
then that would mean every state would have to disqualify them, wouldn't they? Yeah, and, and remember, there's uh, once you're a felon, it's like you can lose your right to vote. Yeah, right. You know, so this kind of gets in that question of like, if you're a felon, you know, can you like, you know, there's a there's a situation where, particularly in Florida, because that's where Donald Trump's residency is now. If he's convicted of a felony in any of this stuff, he will not be allowed to vote in Florida without going through a process to get his votes, you know. Uh, restored. And that's a rare process. You know, same thing happens in Texas, right? You know, it's like there are, you know, the, and, and you have a lot of Republican governors who don't grant that. Wouldn't that be a funny mm-hmm. kind of twist to all this stuff uh, where, you know, Donald Trump cannot vote for himself, you know, even if he's on the ballot, right? You know, it's like, it's just, it's a, it's a really interesting how we handle people with felony records. Even if you mm-hmm. have a felony and you're no longer in prison or jail, you can still be prevented from voting. Eligible to uh, be president, but not eligible to vote. Potentially, yeah, well, that'd be crazy. De- de- depending on how, depending on how some of these court challenges go. It's you know, if you look at the polling on uh, the support for Trump within the Republican Party, all of the prosecutions of him, whether it be the civil stuff in New York or some of the criminal things that are playing out, and Trump was making the point this week that he's going to show up for every one of those court hearings if he can, because they end up turning into political rallies for him, political events for him. When he was walking out of the courthouse in New York the other day, you hear all of his fans cheering for him as he's coming out. This whole persecution thing plays very well within the Republican Party. But you can see within those a, a lot of those same polls, it shows that if he's convicted of any of this stuff, those numbers flip around in the general election. Yeah, Again, kind of saving the Democrats from themselves because even they are not that thrilled with President Biden. And it's fascinating to me that so many Democrats don't like Biden because he's old. Like Trump's old too. They're both <laughs> old. I mean, if they, if that's the standard, they're, they're both old. I have heard some vote. In fairness to all of these folks, I have heard from some Republican voters who have said uh, in this state, they've said that you know, like if Biden's too old, we got to admit Trump's old too, and maybe we should be looking at somebody else. But these folks tend to come home. Um, speaking of felons, how do you like that segue? What what Jeremy? a segue! Beautiful. <laughs> Speaking of either felons or potential felons, we put it that way. You sent me this stuff about uh, Jelly Roll. This yep. uh, he's sort of a, like a country slash rap artist. Uh, do people know who I'm talking about? I, I you sent me this stuff about uh, Jelly Roll testifying on Capitol Hill. I had to refresh my memory about who that is. It's it's this guy. If I only talk to God when I need a favor, God, I need a favor. So tell me about this testimony, Jeremy. Uh, he was there to talk about what? Yeah, it was, you know, look, we, we've seen celebrities testify before Congress before. You know, it's like, you know, think about like Mr. Rogers, you know, testifying, you know, about children's television programming. Yeah, uh, Bono from Pearl Jam, you know, he t- testified about from the you, AIDS from, crisis and refugees. Bono, hang on, Bono from U2. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking Eddie Vedder. <laughs> Eddie Vedder from you, Pearl Jam also yeah. testified. Did he? T- yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I don't want you getting. Yeah, he was testifying on something else. He was originally going to be in my yeah. newsletter, but I went with you know Bono instead. I was kind of like, okay. do I go with you two or Pearl Jam? And I picked. U2. I think more people would remember the activism of Bono. 
honestly. Yeah, probably. And then John Stewart, of course, is like the I think probably the gold standard of it in his fight for uh, the you know police and firefighters affected from nine eleven. Like you know, you know, Google his testimony. You know, you'll see kind of how powerful, powerful that was. Powerful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, this one, you know, this testimony. This was before the Senate Banking Committee, which is crazy to see this guy jelly roll right with all these tattoos all over his face. You know, yeah. no, these senators know who the hell this guy is, right? You it's know, like it's prison like, tats. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, Tim Scott isn't jamming to Jelly Roll, you know, while he's cruising South Carolina at any given moment. But uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. He's <laughs> got you know, a country flair to it. He might. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he has a country rap, whatever this flavor is, right? But he was invited, not just because he's a, a musician, but because he himself had been a drug dealer at one point in his life. Uh, he was, you know, one of these guys who knows about, like, the damage that was being caused and like, and he talked about this, you know, openly during this hearing. So it was a really powerful testimony of him trying to explain to these senators not just like how bad the fentanyl situation is, but just kind of a different perspective that I'm pretty sure they don't get to hear much, right? Like you're used to hearing you know, people in suits and tie telling you what's going on, but this guy's telling you that w- the role that is being played by you know people in their kitchens in like outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and just kind of where this fentanyl problem is. And it isn't just a border problem. This is much bigger and much wider spread and requires something deeper than just building a barrier. Right. Here's part of what he told senators on Capitol Hill. I've attended more funerals than I care to share with y'all. This committee, I could sit here and cry for days about the caskets I've carried of people I loved dearly, deeply, in my soul, good people, not just drug addicts, uncles, Friends, cousins, normal people, some people that just got in a car wreck and started taking a pain pill to manage it. One thing led to the other. And how fast it spirals out of control, I don't think people truly, truly understand. So many people. Equally, I think it's important for me to tell you all that I'm not here to defend the use of illegal drugs. And I also understand the paradox of my history as a drug dealer standing in front of this committee. But equally, I think that's what makes me perfect to talk about this. I was a part of the problem. I am here now standing as a man that wants to be a part of the solution. I brought my community down. I hurt people. I was the uneducated man in the kitchen playing chemists with drugs I knew absolutely nothing about, just like these drug dealers are doing right now when they're mixing every drug on the market with fentanyl, and they're killing the people we love. You know, some people might want to uh, dismiss a you know former drug dealer and a celebrity, a, you know, a musical artist who's going before uh, Congress to talk about these sorts of things. As you pointed out, um, John Stewart getting involved with those 9-11 responders could not have been more effective. And I do think that when it comes to this issue, which is so um, inextricably linked to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with border security, what's coming across our border, uh, that we have all of these people who are, you know, the governor included, Lieutenant Governor Patrick included, all those congressmen who go down there and do cosplay on the border, like you were talking about, Jeremy, they're all complaining about a problem. It's all grievances, and they're not using the word that he used right there, which is solution. What are we going to do to solve this? And I think, you know, you have. Uh, off air with me and elsewhere made the point that um, a lot of this has to do with the demand for what uh, is being sold and is killing people. 
Yeah, a big part of what, uh, how he closed that you know, presentation was that, look, I appreciate y'all trying to do everything you can to stop the supply. That will help. But you've got to do something about demand. We have to kind of focus on that part of it, too. There are kids all over Texas who are taking fentanyl and not knowing that they're taking fentanyl. That's another key point. Like, you know, we've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but when you see those billboards that tell people don't take fentanyl, the people who are taking fentanyl don't know they're taking it. It's like because some guy in a kitchen is mixing that stuff together. It's not like somebody's ordering up fentanyl. This is not like you're, you know, the Nancy Reagan drug war, where it's just like to say no to crack. You know, it's like we don't you know, like we don't know what's in this stuff. We don't know what people are putting together. And then people end up thinking they're taking a sleeping pill or, you know, quite honestly, they, don't, they know that it's, it's some other kind of pill, but you know, they don't know it's laced with fentanyl. If they did, they wouldn't take it maybe. That's why you have the testing strips and, you know, things like that. You know, it's like, and, I, and so it's a much more complicated problem. And it's something we've said here a, a million times, right? Like there's a complicated solution you know, to this problem. Or there's a simple one. The simple one says just build a wall. You know, but is that going to get to the problem? That gets part of the problem. Uh, if you're you're talking about border security, trying to stop the flow of you know fentanyl products into the U.S., but there are still people in the U.S. also putting fentanyl together. You know, it's like and, and putting it into you know pills, into you know the pain pills. You right. and what part of this hearing he's talking about how you know there there are people who are like, end up getting into a car accident or something, and they start taking oxycotton, and then they're like they're already onto something, right? And so yeah. when you come in off of that. Like you now start looking for stuff to kind of keep that going because like what that does to you is like it's so damaging your body. You just can't cut cold turkey, right? And so a lot of these people go in looking for other types of drugs and that's where the fentanyl's overdoses are starting to happen. So I I made the point in the the newsletter, uh, hopefully people saw it. It's like it's not just that he's bringing – you know, this, you know, issue to Congress and giving them a different vantage point. He's also sending a message to all the people who listen to his music too. And it's like, in, you know, about how dangerous fentanyl is. So it kind of has this double kind of uh, 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 effect, hopefully, where it's just mm-hmm. like maybe people who aren't paying attention, you know, to Congress are like, you know, now one noticing like they're talking about this issue and how dangerous fentanyl is from a different voice. You know, it's like no offense to the billboard on I-35 that says don't take fentanyl. But I think Jelly Roll telling his audience, like, no, no, this stuff's going to kill you. Don't don't end up in a casket somewhere with a guy like me as your pallbearer because, like, you didn't get this message. And, like, oh, yeah. and that's the part that when celebrities do this stuff, it's easy to kind of roll it off. But this is mm-hmm. important. Well, it's, it's usually important. You mentioned test strips there. We have a lieutenant governor who wouldn't let a, a piece of legislation move through the Texas Senate to lift the state's ban on the test strips. Right. And and there's been controversy about that, um, you know, about uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick getting upset with uh, a professor who talked about that. Remember that Um, this person uh, apparently had badmouthed him in a presentation, or at least that was that's what was alleged. Um, But I'm reading from the Houston Chronicle editorial board just last year um, where they said that, look, here you have fentanyl deaths in Texas increasing by 400 percent. In the last, not 40, 400% in the last two years, right? Test strips for fentanyl have been endorsed by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Governor Greg Abbott, who is Patrick's fellow Republican. A bill about it passed the Texas House 
led by a Republican, Dade Phelan, and Patrick let it die. It was legislation that would have legalized those life-saving test strips. It failed, and lawmakers chose instead to do what you're talking about, Jeremy, which is target the fentanyl dealers, dramatically increase the penalties for anybody who provides a fatal dose of the powerful opioid, and also crack down on the border. But all these people who are to nonstop scaring you about what's going on on the border won't allow for people to have these test strips. I'm reminded of when there was legislation proposed for uh, the sharing of safe drug needles, yep. which was supported by, but it's not a liberal thing, it was supported by some Republicans. You know, Dr. Bob Dole, who's a former state senator, who's a very conservative Republican, pushing that. And what you hit, what you get from, you know, a lot of folks in the Republican Party led up by Lieutenant Governor Patrick is, no, no, no. We only want to crack down. We don't want to help anybody. We want to crack yeah, down, it, but not help anybody. Yeah, it's important to know that, you know, there's a lot of people who are addicted to, you know, illegal drugs who are sick. It's like they're sick. They're not actually criminals. They're just sick and they need right. help, right? And it's like, and that's kind of what gets lost in all of it. And, you know, not that I planned this, but like when I saw like Jelly Roll kind of, you know, uh, giving that testimony yesterday uh, in Congress, I thought, man, I, I can't believe this guy hasn't played the Houston Rodeo yet. And I kid you not, it was like an hour later, Houston Rodeo announced Jelly Roll's coming. So if you want to hear more of his music, I'm not sure you heard much about fentanyl at his show, but, you know, he may talk at least be coming to Houston. Well, he, may, he may talk about it. He may, maybe he'll mention the lieutenant governor. Give yeah. him a shout maybe out at the Houston Rodeo. Maybe he'll mention our Texas Take podcast to that he crowd should. and say, yeah, he hey, I've now made it big time because Texas Take is playing my music. Well, all right. That's definitely enough show if you're saying that. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're going to move on here into this cold, cold weekend. Everybody stay warm. Uh, you know, look up all the precautions that you need to take. If you're listening to the show here on Friday, or certainly by Saturday morning, you need to have done all of the cold weather preparation because it's moving in uh, on Sunday in a very real way all across uh, the state. And in Dallas, they're already, I think this morning they were already freezing up there. So it was a big uh, <gasps> temperature differential. But I think it was, this morning it was 30 in Dallas, while it was still more like 45 to 50 in Central Texas, so the entire state will be blanketed with those cold, cold temperatures down into the teens by Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, and then we'll start to warm up again on Wednesday and uh, Thursday. Evan Scherer, our producer, thank you so much, sir, for all your work. Jeremy's newsletter you can find um, on his X page. It's the pinned post right at the top. You can sign up for his fl uh, free newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter, which is not free, quorumreport.com. And check out Houston.com, uh, HoustonChronicle.com as well. And we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.